He's leading singing on the morning that we're uh, doing a sermon on singing. I'm, had, I'm glad he's singing, though. I'm glad, you know, the elders, they probably heard stories from other congregations. They haven't asked me to sing because they know if you get to me, you're at the bottom of the barrel. And uh, it's a good thing that the Lord, the Lord uh, enjoys a, a joyful noise. <laughs> Amen. You know, if you look on the screen behind me, singing as an act of worship. That is what we're going get, to get into here this morning. So far, uh, as we have gone through this series of sermons that I, that I spoke to you that I was going to start, as we kind of look to get back to some of the basics, why we do what we do and how we do it, uh, last week we looked at worship. We looked at why we worship, how we worship, the, the attitude, the heart condition, the mindset in which, in which we worship God, the idea that God is here amongst us within our midst. Uh, and then uh, the week before that, we looked at one of the acts of worship, and that was our offering, and that was our giving, and, and how and why we give, and with the right spirit, the right mindset. And, this, and today we're going to get into singing. Uh, because singing is so very important. Perhaps no uh, other portion of worship kind of really thrills the soul, kind of gives you those goosebumps than singing. If you've ever really heard good a cappella singing, and have you ever th thought about the term a cappella? You know, it's an Italian term, Italian term, and cappella, it means in the chapel, right? And so when we think about that term a cappella and why we sing a cappella, it's as in the chapel. Because that's how they sang in the chapel. Did you know for the vast majority of the Christian religion, there was never musical instruments in worship? Now you're hard-pressed to go anywhere outside of a building that says Church of Christ and actually find uh, worship services that don't have musical instruments. And so we're going to look at this lesson here this morning uh, as one of, uh, one of the acts of worship. And we're going to look to see what authority do, does, the, does the Lord give us. We're going to look at some Old Testament passages. We're going to look at some New Testament passages. We're going to see um, when instruments were used. We're going to see uh, why they were used and the spirit in which they were used. And so that is what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Because as I said a moment ago, uh, if you've ever heard really good a cappella singing, it gives you goosebumps. When, uh, when Christy and I, and it's been, it feels like it's been forever since we, the last time we were at Polishing the Pulpit, but hopefully this year, uh, letting elders know, we're going to the Polishing the Pulpit. So if you guys want to come with us, that'd be great. You know, actually, if you could get a group of people to go down there, it would be, it's actually a great time to spend with one another. But when we think of polishing the pulpit, there's a worship service towards the end of the week, right? And that worship service, sometimes there's like two, three, four thousand people. And when you hear uh, a cappella singing with two, three, four thousand people, it literally just gives you chills. Like you, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. It sounds amazing. And so that's what I mean by there's no other really portion of worship that kind of thrills the soul of, of, of Christians, of disciples of God, than our singing. And so when we sing, brethren, our thoughts and our emotions are united when we sing unto God. We have examples of Scripture. Uh, we have examples of Scripture that show that the saints, the early saints, they sung during times of joy, but didn't they also sing during times of, uh, of, of trial, times of burden, right? And so there's a sense um, that when we offer up our singing unto the Lord, in a sense, it's a sacrifice. And I didn't know that uh, Ed was going to use one of my passages of Scripture this morning, but well done. And so Ed, he used Hebrews chapter 13. And if you look on the screen behind me, it says, through him, through Christ, then let us continually do what? 
offer up a sacrifice of praise unto God, that is the fruit of the lips, in which we give thanks unto his holy name. And so if, if anything, this thought process helps us to understand the importance of singing during our worship assembly. Because as we offer up the fruit of the lips, it's as, it's as if we're offering up a sacrifice. We're offering up a gift unto the Lord. And our songs are likened unto a gift. I want you to remember, too, what uh, James, Jesus' stepbrother, had to say in James chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him offer up songs of praise to the Lord. And as they do that, brethren... For those of us who are overjoyed, singing really is an outlet to express our thanksgiving to God. Because when we sing unto the Lord and we're happy and we're joyous and our, and our heart's content, we want to sing thanksgiving unto the Lord. And when we think about times of joy, we have many examples of scripture uh, that, that would talk about uh, singing unto the Lord, giving thanksgiving, giving them the fruit of the lips. And this next passage is in Psalm 66. And it's kind of a scripture-heavy sermon because I don't want to stand up here this morning and tell you what I think, how I feel about what my preference is for how we should go about worship service. Because what I feel and what my preference is really doesn't matter. Do our preferences matter when it comes to the worship unto the Lord? And, then, and the answer is absolutely no. And so we look to the scriptures this morning, both old and new, to find out what the Lord says in regards to singing. In Psalm 66, it says, Shout joyfully to God, all of the earth. Sing, glory, uh, uh, sing the glory of his name. Make his uh, praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of your greatness, of your power, your enemies will give insincere obedience to you. But all of the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. And then will sing praises to your name. Brethren, we think about that and we understand that that's one of the examples that we can look to to where we worship God in song, right? We worship God in song and we give thanks to his great and holy name for the great many wonderful blessings he has done for us and for the thankfulness that's in our hearts. And so we sing unto the Lord with our mind, meaning with understanding. We sing unto the Lord with the right spirit, meaning the right heart condition. And then I think about times of uh, burden. I think it's about times of trial. And when you look at this next passage of scripture, it comes to us from Acts chapter 16. And when you go back and you read and you keep it in context in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, they found themselves in Philippi, did they not? And when they're, when they're there, uh, uh, because of what they were preaching, because of who they were and the message that they were spreading, uh, they, were, uh, they were arrested, they were beaten with rods, and then they were thrown into the prison. And they were locked in the innermost prison, and yet what does the scriptures tell us? After they were beaten with rods, after they were imprisoned, and they were shackled, it says, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were doing what? They were praying and singing to, to who? They were praying and singing to God, and they were singing hymns of praise to God, and it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. And what's interesting about that story, and I don't want to get too much into it, but when you look at that story... There's an earthquake that happens in the story, and the, and the doors of the, of the prison fly wide open. 
and yet the prisoners did not escape. Uh, uh, the, 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 the Philippian jailer is about to execute himself. He's about to commit suicide because in that day, in that era, if you were the, if you were the guard, if you were the, uh, the, ward of the, or the warden of the prison and your prisoners escaped, they would have killed you. So he was going to take his own life. And the Apostle Paul says, no, brother, stop. He says, we are all here. Put down your sword. And so what happens? We see that these jailers or, the, or these, uh, uh, these criminals, these prisoners were doing what? They were listening to Paul and Silas pray. They were listening to the words that they were singing. And you had the Philippian jailer who probably understood uh, that they were there unjustly, but they were there nonetheless. And yet he heard the words to their prayers. He heard the words to their songs. And I just wonder... After hearing these things, after hearing uh, 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 what was going on, perhaps it was the Philippian jailer who then asked Paul and Silas about salvation because of the prayers that he heard, because of the words that they were singing. You see, because when we sing, brethren, we don't just mouth empty words. Is there not meaning behind the words in which the songs of which we sing? Do not many of the, uh, the songs that we sing come from passages of Scripture? And so when we think about this, regardless of, of why the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas about salvation, it is hardly possible we know to worship God without the inclusion of singing, without concentrating on singing. And when we consider teaching through song, I want us to think about this next passage of Scripture. Because when we get to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, along with Ephesians 5 and 19, these are two of the scriptures in the New Testament that we look at in regards to what? Singing as the command, as the authority that we have and why we do what we do. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, the scriptures tell us, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, doing what? Teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so in essence, the Apostle Paul, he viewed our singing as an opportunity to praise God, yet while teaching others. Because when we sing, others are hearing the words in which we sing. So think about it for a second. The words of our songs are directed towards God and yet are directed towards others simultaneously, are they not? And because singing should teach and admonish others while we praise God for our thankfulness in our hearts, it is an activity that should be shared within the Christian community. And we oftentimes understand that there are many who, when they hear certain songs, they're pricked to the heart. I listen to Caleb all the time, and there's constantly people talking about, because of the songs, because of the music, because of the lyrics, how it's pricked their heart, how it's caused them to have an emotional response to God, but also it has a, a, a mindful response. Because when we sing, we sing with the mind and we sing with the spirit. We sing with, the, uh, with the, our emotions, but we sing with understanding. Because we, we concentrate on the words in which we sing. And so, brothers and sisters, let's, let's transition for a few. We're going to have a couple different transitions during this lesson. Because I don't want to go two, three weeks on singing. I've never been one of those guys who like long series of sermons. I just don't. Like, after a while, sometimes, like, I get it. I get it. Can we move on? And, like, I remember earlier on in my faith, I used to be like, come on. This is, like, the sixth week we've been talking about this. Can we just move on? And so I just don't like long series. And so I'm going to pack it into one, and then we'll go on to the other acts of worship. Because this is something that, honestly, I'd rather talk about more in a Bible study setting 
where we could have some back and forth conversation versus just from the pulpit. And so I think about what Colossians 3 and 16 says, but I also think about uh, the words of our songs and how, like I said, they're directed to both God and to others simultaneously. Because singing should teach and admonish others. That's what it says right there in Colossians 3 and 16. And because singing appeals to our emotions, individuals are sometimes moved to obedience through the lyrics in our songs. Notice what the Apostle Paul said to the people of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. Notice that he says, what is, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with my mind. Also, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with my mind as well. He's basically simply telling us there in that passage of Scripture that he's going to sing with the, from the hearts. He's going to use the instrument of the heart and sing from the heart with strong emotion unto God for the thankfulness for all the blessings he has, but he's also going to sing with understanding. That is what singing with the mind and praying with the mind means. To sing and to pray with understanding as we, do, as we do so unto the Lord. And I think about 1 Timothy. I think about what the Apostle Paul wrote to young Timothy. And he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you uh, before long. But in case I'm delayed, he says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God. The pillar and the, uh, the pillar and the support of the truth. You think about what Paul wrote to young uh, Timothy, who was an evangelist. And Paul's words indicate that there is an appropriate, uh, an appropriate way for Christians to conduct themselves. Sure, he's talking about in a general sense, but obviously he's also talking about the worship assembly. It's not just talking about outside the church. He's talking about outside and inside the church. I asked the, uh, the class this morning in Bible study. I said, are we representatives of the body of Christ? And if we go out into the world and we do foolish things, and can't we bring shame and dishonor upon the congregation? Can't we bring shame and dishonor upon the Lord and upon his church? Because people look to us as his representatives, and there's a term that they use for Christians. You guys know what that term is that many worldly people use? Hypocrites. Why in the world would they use hypocrites in, re in reference to, uh, to, to Christians, disciples of Christ? Because many Christians and disciples of Christ don't do things that glorify the church and honor God and glorify his great and holy name. They do many things that glorify themselves and they actually cause shame and dishonor to come upon the church. And so we have to be careful and understand that as, as the disciples of Jesus Christ, when we go out into the world, we are his representatives. And so we need to make sure that we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of that title of the Son of God. And so, brothers and sisters, you look at giving truth. We must make sure that when we worship God in the manner that he approves, it's like Jesus talked about in John chapter 4. When he had that conversation with the, with the woman at the well, and he talked about worshiping God in spirit and truth, and how God seeks those who worship him to be such worshipers, who worship with the right spirit, the right hearkenness, the right mindset, to worship according to truth. In like manner, Christians today must worship God as he specifies. And that's why earlier we looked at Hebrews 13 and 15. Because what did it say there? That through him... Let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, that it is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. Our singing is likened unto a sacrifice, and sacrifices were directed towards, towards God. 
When you think about the Old Testament, if you know anything about the Levitical system, the, the, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system, were there specifics given unto them? Were there specifics, specifics, can't say that word, that were given to the Levitical priests? And the answer is yes. And if they did not do the sacrifices, how they were specifically uh, called to do, was God pleased with them? Weren't these people, wasn't there somebody named Nadab and Abihu? Weren't they Aaron's sons? Then they pull out censers and put fire in the censers, and then they say, hey, we're going to spice it up a little bit. We're going to add a little bit of incense here. Surely God's going to like it. Who doesn't like a little incense, right? And all of a sudden it says in that same passage uh, there that they offer profane fire before the Lord. What were they doing? Oh, they were worshiping the Lord. And they did something that the Lord did not call them to do, and they offered profane fire, which means they did something contrary to God's command, and he rained fire from heaven and struck them dead on the spot. I'm surely, I'm real happy that God doesn't do that today, because there would be, be a lot less churches right now. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of churches who continue to do things according to, the, to, according to the appetites of men, according to the preferences of men, but have no scriptural authority to what they do. And so, brethren, we think about this here this morning. And similarly, just like that, we uh, our singing is like a sacrifice unto the Lord, it must be done how God authorizes Although individuals benefited from the sacrifices, did they not benefit from the sacrifices that they offered to the Lord? And yet it wasn't directed towards man, it was directed towards God. Our singing, likewise, we receive benefits from the singing. I talked about the goosebumps. I talked about how when you hear really good a cappella singing, that the hair will stand up on your neck, you get chills because it just sounds so good. We receive benefits, but it's not for man. It's offered unto God. And yet we can still receive a benefit, but it's not for us. Amen? And so we look at this, brethren. In 1 Corinthians 14 and 15, I say again, what then is the outcome? I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with the mind. I will also sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind. This parallels the understanding that had to accompany the sacrifices of the Lord. Did they just willy-nilly just sacrifice anything and everything they wanted, or were there specifics? Did they have to understand? Did they have to offer their sacrifices with the right spirit, but offer them with the right mindset? Did they have to understand who and why they were offering sacrifices to? You see, brethren, there's, a, there's an issue of authority here. And when we seek to better appreciate the role of singing and worship, let us keep in mind that God has directed man to worship him in song. We are to sing with our voices. We looked at Colossians 3 and 16. Now on the screen behind me, you see Ephesians 5 and 19. And we also, it also tells us that we are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does it say? Singing and making melody with, the, with your heart to the Lord. And some people will look up the Vines Dictionary and it will say making melody means the strumming of an instrument. But it says what? Making melody with your heart. It's the instrument of your heart. You strum the strings of your heart. You sing from your soul. You sing with your heart, from, uh, from, from your, with everything you have inside you as you praise God in worship. But we are called to sing. And so I want us to make sure we pay attention to that because God did not authorize man to sing so that man's aesthetic taste may be satisfied. Those who concern themselves with the way the, the singing sounds, 
They kind of miss the point. And I know I joke around all the time about, hey, when he gets to me, I'm the bottom of the barrel. God enjoys everybody singing. He enjoys the fruit of the lips. It doesn't matter how you sing. Because if, 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 only, if only the people who could sing are the ones who could actually sing, most of us wouldn't be singing. Let's just be honest. Right? I'm not the only one that's probably close to the bottom of the barrel. But that's not what we understand. We sing with the mind. We sing with the spirits. And God loves the sound of his, his children. Those who call out in his name with thanksgiving in their hearts. And they offer up praise and the fruit of the lips like we looked at in Hebrews 13 earlier. Brethren, the singing authorized by God appeals to man's spiritual nature. And it is to be done with understanding. It is to be done with the right focus in mind. When we contemplate the meaning of the words we, that, that we sing, we engage both the body and the mind. We, we engage both the spirit and the mind. How many times, I know I've mentioned this sometimes from the pulpit, I've mentioned it sometimes in Bible study. How often do we, though, sing the songs we sing and we just kind of sing them and we just kind of go through the motions? How often do you really stop and consider the words that we're singing? Because that is what singing in the spirit and singing with the mind means. That we just don't, just, we just don't, uh, uh, just, uh, uh, just, what do you call it? Uh, just uh, sing and say whatever we want. We actually, uh, with empty words, that's what I was, the phrase I was looking for. We don't just sing with empty words, we sing with meaning, right? There's meaning behind our words. Remember uh, a couple weeks ago, or was it last week when I was preaching on worship? And I said, how often has worship just become an obligation? Like, we just go through the motions. It's like showing up to work on Monday. We know we got to do it because this is what we do. And so we show up, we go through the motions, and do what they ask us to do, and we go home, right? How often has worship become that? Or, yet, or do we sing the songs with the right spirit? Do we sing the songs with the right understanding? Because I think about in John chapter 4 and verse 24, and God said that we are, to, uh, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, because God is spirit. And in verse 23 it says, He seeks those who worship him to be such worshipers, who worship with the right spirit, who worship according to the truth. So remember, when we worship God, both our physical and our spiritual participation is needed. We don't just go through the motions. We do so with the right heart condition. And when we sing, we're not merely mouthing empty words. Rather, we are speaking meaningful words unto God. We're speaking meaningful words unto God that praise and glorify his holy name. And now I want us to transition again because uh, as before, we, before we could close this lesson down, we need to, and I'm going to go over. I just looked at the clock. We're definitely going over. This probably should have been a two-parter. But, you know, I talked about those serious things, right? And so as we look at, you know, the next transition, and the next transition comes from the idea that how often we must consider what modern man has done to worship. When I say modern man, I'm talking about the last 200 years. Did you know for the vast majority of the Christian uh, religion, the Christian faith, singing wasn't a part of the worship service. Or, I'm sorry, musical instruments weren't a part of the worship service. And perhaps more than any other component of worship, there's this temptation to transform singing into something that God never intended it to be. Have you heard of these things called praise teams, choirs, uh, rock bands? 
You know, certain people are singing in the, in the audience. They got a microphone, but nobody else has the microphone. Why? Because they're trying to turn worship into a production. They're trying to improve upon the product. And when you think of worship as a production, then there's the tendency of mankind to do what? To want to improve upon the product. And this leads us to the question, why do the churches of Christ not use musical instruments? Well, the issue is not here. The issue this morning that is presented before us is not one of personal preference. The question, as with every other question, hinges on the, on the idea of authority. Remember, we must have authority from Scripture for all that we do. And so the question for people who seek to worship God in spirit and truth is not a question of preference, but it's a question of authority. So ask yourself here this morning, as New Testament Christians who are to do all in the authority of Jesus, where is Jesus' command to use musical instruments? As New Testament Christians who are to do all in the authority of Christ, where is the command in New Testament Scripture to use instruments in the worship of God? Brethren, the debate doesn't come from what the scriptures say. The debate comes from what the scriptures do not say. The argument made by people in favor of musical instruments goes like this. Well, God has not specifically forbidden the use of instrument, instrumental music in worship, so therefore we are free to use instruments if we choose to do so. Brothers and sisters, this logic is flawed on many different levels, and many examples could be given in scripture as to why that logic is flawed. Ask yourself a question, and I love this. I got this from Andy a couple, or Randy a couple years ago, and I use it all the time now. Does God make mistakes? If God does not make mistakes, well, then I want you to listen. Because if you go back and we look at Old Testament worship, I ask this question because in the Old Testament worship, was there this thing called tabernacle worship? And was there this thing called temple worship? Well, did you know that in, in Numbers chapter 10 that God commanded in Moses that they were to use trumpets in tabernacle worship? Who commanded it? Not Moses, but God. Moses was simply just following through with what God had required of him. Then many years later, hundreds of years later, when God's people were firmly settled in the promised land and the Ark of the Covenant was permanently parked in the new capital city of Jerusalem, we see that they eventually transitioned from tabernacle worship unto temple worship. And it was during that temple worship about 1000 BC when David decides to add a few instruments. And many people will see David used instruments in temple worship, so surely if it was acceptable to God, then it must be acceptable to us. And they'll quote passages like 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verses 4 through 6, and they'll see how David added to worship, he added harps and lyres and cymbals. And people in favor of instrumental music and worship, they'll go to passages like that. But it's unfortunate because they skipped this other passage called 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And in verse 25, and I want you to see on the screen behind me. On the screen behind me, there was this guy named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, he was one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah during the, uh, the divided kingdom of Israel. And during the divided kingdom of Israel, the king before Hezekiah had gone into all type of idolatry and immorality, and he literally shut the doors of the temple. Hezekiah comes on the scene, and he says, we're going to restore temple worship. We're going to restore it to exactly what God had required of, of, of his people. And what does it say on the screen behind me? 
He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David, and, the Gad, and Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. What does it say? For the command was from the Lord through his prophets. So what's the point of looking at the, that passage? Several hundred years earlier, David added instruments, the lyre, the cymbal, the harp, to temple worship. It wasn't because he wasn't a big fan of trumpet-only worship. And I'm sure you look at it today, people probably got tired of just the piano, or they got tired of just the organ, and so we're going to start to add some drums, and we'll add some guitars, and we'll add some other things. It wasn't because David just wasn't a fan of trumpet-only worship. It wasn't that he added uh, some of those things because he wanted to enhance worship. It wasn't because he felt pressure from those who worshipped alongside him, members of the congregation, so to speak, were putting pressure on him. We need to enhance the worship. We need to make the worship bigger and better to attract more people. Is that what was going on? Brethren, David's command for what instruments to use in the temple worship were commanded by God. Moses' uh, command for what instruments to use in tabernacle worship were commanded by God. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David says that God had given him every detail for the temple, for how it was to be designed, how it was to, and how temple worship was to be conducted. And we see that then he then passes that information on to Solomon. Brethren, you look at this information this morning. We live, in a, we live and worship God under a new covenant, do we not? I only make mention of the Old Testament passages to show that they utilized instruments in worship to God because that was what God had specified. God had commanded them to use trumpets in tabernacle worship and then allowed David to add the other worships because that's what God had told him through his prophet. And so remember earlier, a few minutes ago, I asked you a simple question. Does God make mistakes? Does God make mistakes? Because obviously he must have forgot to add the passage about the cymbals, the harps, the piano, the organ, the, 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 the drums, or anything else. He must have forgot to add those to the New Testament because there's no passage in the New Testament anywhere that speaks of musical instruments. And so I ask this question because in the New Testament, God has inaugurated a new covenant for a new kingdom, for a new people, for a new beginning. If God wanted instruments in Christian worship, is it reasonable to conclude that he would have specified through the Holy Spirit-led apostles what exactly he wanted? Who was God's man when, uh, when he pulled the people up out of the, uh, out of the land of Egypt? Wasn't it Moses? And he gave him specific instructions. Who was God's man when, uh, when, uh, that, that wanted to build the temple? Wasn't it David? But because he had blood on his hands, he, uh, Solomon was the one that built it. But who would God give the instructions to? He gave it to David. And David passed it on to Solomon. And Solomon followed those instructions. Brothers and sisters, just as God did with Moses and tabernacle worship and David with temple worship, he gave specific commands. There is not a single command from the apostles to use instruments in Christian worship. Not a single command in the New Testament of Christian, uh, not a, nor a single example of New Testament Christians using instruments in worship to God. And I'm going to close this down in like any second now, so just, just bear with me, like two more minutes. We look at this because people ask us all the time, right? We've become the oddballs. 
People, they come into uh, Church of Christ worship and they say, it looks so vastly different than like my Catholic upbringing. It looks different than somebody's Lutheran upbringing or their Methodist upbringing. Or if you go to any of these mega churches, I call them mega churches, you know, these big churches with the fancy light shows and the rock bands and all these different things. Why do they have those things? They have those things because of the appetites of men. They see worship as a production. And if you see it as a production, you see it as something that needs to be improved upon continuously. And that's what they aim to do. They aim to give it worship experience. Me and John have had this conversation multiple times where he was talking about when he used to go to one of those churches, they would be after service not talking about the word of God. they say, man, did you see that guitar solo? That was an awesome guitar solo. They weren't worse. They weren't focused. And he's laughing because that's what he's told me. They weren't focused on God and worship. They were focused on external things. Brothers and sisters, before I close this down, I have to touch on authority for a second. For us in the Lincoln Park Church of Christ, these things, up, these things add up that I spoke of this morning. They add up to the same simple conclusion that all of the Christian ancestors who came before us came to, that, came to the same conclusion. Since they didn't use instrumental worship in the early church, we ourselves will not use instrumental music uh, in the worship of God here today. And so when I close this down, and I said I have to look at authority real quickly, rapid fire. Authority. Who has all authority in the church? Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Is that some authority or all authority? And all the scriptures contain the word of God, right? Because Jesus was commanded what to say. John 12 says, or John 14 and 16 says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to remind you everything I've ever said and did. And then I want you to then write that, and I want you to then circulate these letters throughout the church. Did the Holy Spirit make a mistake? Did he forget to add the drums and the guitars? You see, they had instruments in the New Testament. They had instruments in that era, but yet God did not command those. He did not authorize those. He did not specify those. Notice this next passage. I really like Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. You know why that's an important verse? Because when it says in the name of Jesus, it means in the authority of Jesus. So read it again. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the authority of Jesus, giving thanks to his name. Understanding the importance of authority in the church is key to this topic. But it's not just key to this topic. It's also key to every other question pertaining to religious belief and pertaining to religious practice. And before I shut it down, John 2 and 9 says, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teachings of Christ doesn't have what? It says you don't have God. And then you look at one more, John 8 and 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had, uh, who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then what? You are truly my disciples. Brethren, so the question here this morning, I'm shutting it down, I promise. <laughs> Heard that before, right? And I'm shutting it down. The question here this morning is, do we have scriptural authorization by God to use instruments in worship, in New Testament worship, and the answer is a resounding no. Colossians, right, uh, 3 and 16, um, Ephesians 5 and 19, they both command us, New Testament, New Covenant, New, new Kingdom Christians to sing. No more, no less. 
just as they had done since AD 33, just as the majority of all Christians have done since the beginning and the founding of the church. These, all the churches that use all these instruments, this is like in the last 200 years. You could look at really 15, 1600 years of the church and you would almost find nowhere would you find musical instruments. They had them. But they, even the founders of all the denominations knew, do a history study on it, they knew that that's not what God had commanded. They knew what the idea of authority and worship meant, and they were not going to do something that violated God's principles, God's commands. Brothers and sisters, if you're hearing this lesson today and you have questions, please get with me afterwards. But if you're hearing this lesson today and you're not a Christian and your desire is to become a Christian, please let us know. Because you could come up here this morning, you could sit on this first pew and tell us that your desire is to be baptized. Your desire is to have your sins washed away, to have God add you to the church, and to become a member of the body of Christ where you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But maybe you, you got a heavy heart this morning. Maybe you're struggling with something. Brethren, you can come forward. The elders will come forward, and they will pray with you. They will talk with you, and we can help you through whatever it is that you're going through. If you're struggling, if you wish to become a Christian, come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.